with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. On today's show, leaders of the 21 economies around the Asia Pacific region have gathered in San Francisco to discuss economic growth and other issues. And China recalls strong retail sales and industrial activity in October. And now let's begin with our top story. Leaders of the 21 economies around the Asia-Pacific region have gathered in San Francisco this week, ensuring long-term growth in the Asia-Pacific region is the main focus of the meeting. The summit between Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden has also attracted global attentions. So, what are the highlights of this year's APEC meeting, and what has the group achieved? For more on this, join us on the line now, are Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow. With Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Willamette University, and also Ina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, yeah, I will start with you. So, what is APEC? And considering the current global economic landscape, what role can APEC play in addressing the major challenges faced by the global economy now? Good to talk to you. So OEPAC stands for Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation. So as you mentioned, this is a organization. It was established in 1989. It was actually in, started and pushed by you know、uh, the United States, which want to be part of this multilateral sort of trade liberalization、uh, group and block.、Uh, but you know, fast forward to today, it seems that you know the Biden administration or the United States as as, as a whole has been making some shift.、Uh, Um, it seems that they are hesitant to continue with the kinds of、uh, trade liberalization and regional integration. But nonetheless, I think the group remains really dynamic.、Um, there has been a lot regional integration、uh, in the past, you know,、uh, decades, and the the region remains to be very dynamic in terms of their trade, in terms of their investment, and their commercial activities. So this is a group of countries that represent 40% of the global population, around 40% of the global GDP, and nearly half of all the global trade. So that just gives you the sense of how important this organization is. And I think this time around, you know, after Three years of non-in-person meeting because of COVID, I think you know countries are being very enthusiastic.、Um, they're definitely talking about you know further integrations,、uh, further ways of engaging with each other to cope with global challenges and try to rekindle、um, their economy and their regional economies、um, after the COVID.、Mm. And Dr. Zhou, so what role do you think can the APEC play in addressing the major challenges faced by the、uh, global economy now? We know that APEC is an organization that are trying to promote the open and inclusive cooperation. So in this world, we know that there are so many challenges that we are facing, not only from the society but also from economy and climate change. Actually, APEC is a very open platform that we provide. Such a platform for all the related stakeholders to raise their voices and their concerns. It's not a kind of a Force the mechanism that everyone should try to do the same thing. We are trying to provide the possibilities. So actually, if we can try to use these platforms better and wiser, I would see that more the economies will try to understand that the different 
recovery uh, pace for different economies, and we can try to cooperate with others to improve the global supply chains. It is much possible for us to address the challenges.、Mm. And Dr. Joe, so the theme of this week's APEC meeting is inclusion and interconnectivity, and that actually very much speaks to the fact that the China-U.S. relationship has a bigger impact on the world. So, for the meeting between President Xi Jinping and President Joe Biden. This is the first face-to-face meeting between the two leaders since they met in Bali last year. So, what have the two sides said, and what signal has it sent? Actually, when I look at their meeting, I found that they have sent some very positive signals that both sides are trying to working on what a lot of issues, including the artificial intelligence and also the climate change. So we are not only trying to do something based on our own opinions and own perspective. We should try to do to do more in a collaboratively way. So I would say that after the meeting, we we can still find that the challenges are still there, but. There are many very clear signals are sent, and、uh, I I think that related working groups and related、uh, the stakeholders will start to work after the you know the both leaders have made a very clear、uh, signal that we should try to work on. Mm. And so, yeah, actually, obviously, economics play a big role in those discussions, and some of the issues, like the U.S. tariffs and also the restrictions of the high-tech products or chips exports to China. So, how will these、uh, issues moving forward? Do you think? Well, I think this is going to be a thorny issue、um, going forward. I think the United States is clear in their strategic goals,、um, which is to maintain and to manage the competition with China. Now, China definitely does not agree with this kinds of definition or characterization of the relationships. I think China really wants to have you know mutual respect and、um, equal relationships with. You know, win-win cooperation, and as President Xi、um, stated very clearly,、um, he does not believe competition is really the defining sort of mega trend between the two countries, and cooperation is much more important. That said, I think you know the Biden administration has been talking about de-risking, which is to set up sort of the small yard with high fence to prevent certain technologies、uh, being sort of shared、uh, by China. Now, I think China definitely does not like、um, this sort of、um, the, the whole so-called de-risking strategy and see it as a way to contain China's growth.、Um, but unfortunately, I think this is going to continue on、uh, with the Biden administration, and it's think there is a tendency also to extend that small yard and also set the fence even higher.、Um, that's definitely unfortunate for both countries and for the rest of the world. Um, but I think China definitely is trying to、uh, develop their own technologies.、Um, it's a really all society mobilization of resources, you know, from the government to entrepreneurs.、Um, they're trying to catch up and they're trying to leap forward、um, in terms of technological capacity. So I think, you know, until the United States realizes that, you know, the technological containment is not going to work. Um, then I think you know this is, this is unfortunately going to continue on.、Um, but again, I think、um, this may only, in a way,、um, slow down China a little bit. But in the long run, I do think that China is going to rise up、um, from these kinds of strategies. So, Dr. Zhou, do you think the relationship between Beijing and Washington will stabilize? And in which areas do you think can the two countries cooperate more? Yeah, I do believe that if both sides really need this cooperation, it will be. 
better. Well, maybe we can hear from the market that so many stakeholders are trying to connect and uh, reconnect with each other. You know, in the past few months, we see so many meetings between both sides on different levels and different areas. So the market really needs the cooperation. They really need our stable environment for further and longer term of investment and cooperation. But if we cannot make it clear that uh, we we can do it, we can have enough room to improve the both countries, not only in a competitive way, but in a more friendly way. That will be much more friendly, I mean, possible for the cooperation. But we still cannot find it right now. So as for the cooperation, I, I mean that there are so many things, including what you have mentioned, and also something to do with artificial intelligence. I, actually, even in the field of artificial intelligence, it is not only our problem of the technology about the manufacturing, but a system but an ecosystem and the rule-based, uh, I mean, the cooperation between both sides, China and the United States, we can do a lot more to improve the stability and predictability of these areas, which is crucial for the whole development of all the related uh, sectors and industries in the world. Mm-hmm. And Yan, so how important do you think is the people-to-people exchanges for the relationship between the two countries? Well, I think it's super important. I think that it's really the backbone um, of the relationships going forward. And I agree with what has been said. I think political rhetoric, right, and this kinds of ideological divide, uh, division are very difficult to overcome. But, you know, at the people to people level, say business, for example, um, I think despite all these political uh, sort of rhetoric, um, businesses still wanted to work in China and work with China. Um, and at the people to people level, you know, there's the cultural exchanges, you know, there's so many uh, young people are learning about Chinese culture, you know, um, from martial arts to calligraphy, you know, you name it. Um, so I think those are the good signs. Uh, and there's also, you know, at the ground level, uh, at the city to city level, for example, where I am in Oregon, uh, we have a uh, Oregon Business Council um, that includes a lot of these, you know, people who are poor business um, or from education. Um, they're traveling to China. They are talking to their counterparts at the city level and trying to build some cooperation and uh, collaboration projects. And so I think all of these are very important um, because, you know, after all, you know, people still wanted to be able to engage with each other. They still wanted to exchange ideas. They still wanted to, you know, build something together um, for their own futures. So I think that is very important um, to resume, you know, stable relationships and mutual corporations. Mm-hmm. And for the APAC region, there was a research report that came out at the uh, very beginning of this week that highlighted that economic growth in the APAC region is expected to go up slightly this year and then go down slightly, you know, next year. And it showed that the GDP within the APAC block is expected to increase by 3.3% this year, but only 2.8% next year. So how do you view it? And what's the promising signs of the economy in this region? And what are the uh, downside risk for this region? Right. So I think the upside uh, factors include, you know, the resumption of tourism, domestic consumption, and also targeted fiscal support by various countries. So these are the positive factors that would help to propel um, the economic growth this year to reach that 3.3% of growth rate. Um, But, you know, there are also other, you know, headwinds uh, that, that are facing 
the region and the economies. So these include, for example, inflation, um, higher debt, climate change, um, trade protectionism, and also geopolitical tensions, including you know the relationships between the United States and China. So I think those are the you know factors that countries would have to deal with. Um, so I agree with um, you know what has been said that you know this this. Uh, in-person meeting between uh, President Biden and President Xi will help, hopefully, right, to stabilize the relationships. And so countries in the region could focus on their economic, you know, integration and cooperation instead of worried about choosing sides and, and whatnot. Um, so I think, you know, for this, for, for, for this region, I still think, you know, they have great potentials in terms of, for example, uh, in the climate change areas. Um, there could be a lot of potentials in terms of, you know, climate finance, climate uh, technologies, um, and also in terms of technology, for example, boosting digital trade, uh, you know, boosting some of the um, energy and uh, green technologies. So I think those are still the, the driving force going forward. Mm. Um, and not to mention, you know, the, the, the better uh, integration of trade and investments. Mm. And finance ministers from the APEC member economies retain their attention to three different areas or three priority areas. Actually, one of them is supply side. And then they look at a sustainable finance. And finally, they are talking about digital assets. So, yeah, among those issues, what impressed you most? Well, definitely, I think the sustainable finance is where the corporation could uh, really flourish. Um, I think the whole idea of the supply chain uh, management, I'm really, again, concerned about this whole idea of de-risking, French shoring, um, which is, again, trying to cut China out of the supply chain, uh, which, of course, is, in, uh, is going to end up in vain. I think what happened, according to a lot of the industry experts, is that you cannot exclude China from the supply chain. All you can do is to complicate the supply chain and make it more opaque and make it more distorted. So I'm not very enthusiastic or sanguine about this whole idea of, you know, how we can uh, quote unquote, you know, manage the supply chain or make it more resilient. I think a lot of this is driven uh, by the United States's um, concern about, you know, sort of China's dominance in the global supply chain. And the digital assets aspect, I'm also not quite, uh, you know, sanguine about this whole idea of Bitcoin or stable coin. Um, I think a lot of these are fictitious capital. Um, I don't think they're going to do great good um, to the real economy. But I think that the sustainable finance is really the part that really needs to to work on. I think uh, you know developing countries these days are really geared up um, to trying to fight against you know uh, climate change because even though they did not contribute a lot to the you know carbon emission or the cli climate disasters, these developing countries are really the main victim. Um, and according to the World Economic Forum. When they looked at, you know, between 2000 and 2019, climate disasters cost $16.3 million per hour um, in terms of economic damages. So I think it's it's very important to address climate change. Um, and I also think that, you know, this concept of just transition, uh, providing climate finance to developing countries as they try to rein in their carbon emission, I think this is the way to go. Um, this is a just way to help uh, you know, the global reduction of carbon emission and help, you know, developing countries to move move forward. Mm -hmm. So I definitely um, 
are very, I, I am very hopeful um, for that. And I'm really hoping that um, more substantive outcomes can come out from, you know, these meetings. Mm. And innovation is also one of the three priorities for this year's APAC meeting. So Aina, could you tell us more about that? What can be done on the innovation cooperation among the APAC member economies? Well, they've been talking about having standards and things like this. Uh, there has to be uh, agreement between uh, the U.S. and China. Uh, you know, uh, obviously, AI is one of the areas that they have talked about and they agreed uh, jointly that this needs to be done. So, Dr. Joe, so could you tell us more about that, the APAC meetings, the three priorities, and what can be done on those areas? So in my understanding, you know, the change is very difficult for people who are getting used to that. I mean, that change maybe lies on two aspects. The first one is when we are updated to our new technology or new new sectors, uh, people have to learn more technology to be fit for, for the new sectors, which is not very easy for many of us. Well, the second is that when we're updated to some new things, we have to change the, the method we are doing with uh, traditional sectors. So we have to reallocate the resources and trying to balance or rebalance the benefits of us. So when we're talking about these three priorities, I would say that uh, it has uh, given us many good hope that we can do to expand better room. But uh, how can we trying to persuade the people that they are getting better by doing that instead of uh, paying too much cost. That is one of the things that we have to be very inclusive. That's why APEC is so dynamic, because every economies have their own designs. And I, I think that they sh should have be giving the priorities or rights to undertake their their goals and their path of reaching that. So we can try to understand the different demands of different conditions of different economies and trying to not use a uniform ways to carry out the three priority, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Joe, so APAC is a product of globalization when it's launched three decades ago. And we are now seeing rising, you know, trend of protectionism and unilateralism. So do you see any any potential for APAC to further enhance its role in light of these changes? Yeah, actually, many years ago that APAC have raised the concept of FTAAP is a kind of uh, free trade agreement covering all the APEC members. So I, I would say that after that, you know, many economies have tried to, to elaborate and trying to prove that it is uh, uh, some kind of things, it's uh, possible. So we are in the way to integrate the market in a better way, but uh, some countries, if they are still are facing, you know, uh, based on their economic performance, that's not so good to trying to cooperate in the globalization, we may try to look at and uh, giving or uh, set up some examples on doing that. Well, if you are looking at the APEC economies, they are also, they are very dynamic, but they are still facing the, the challenges by many areas. So we may should try to start by uh, establish a certain kind of co uh, cooperation, maybe not uh, among all the APEC members, but in the uh, a moderate ways to cooperate one by one. So actually, I would say that uh, the businesses are one of the priorities or pillars for the different opinions for the globalization. And APEC has uh, given the businesses, uh, people, some ideas or platforms to speak for their own positions. And that is definitely one of the 
very important innovative ways for us to understand the world and dealing it with in a better way. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, Professor Yan Liang at Villamette University, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And after a short break, we'll take a look at China's stronger retail sales and industrial activity. Stay with us. Go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. China's consumer and industrial activity expanded faster than expected in October. Data from the National Bureau of Statistics shows that China's retail sales of consumer goods climbed 7.6 percent compared to last year, and the country's industrial production also went up 4.6 percent. So, Dr. Zhou, actually, China's industrial output grew by 4.6 percent year-on-year in October, and also the retail sales also rose by 7.6 percent. So, these figures we've seen, you know, rebound and beat expectations. So, what does it tell us about the consumption and the economic recovery? I think that、uh, from this data, we know that from both sides of the supply side and demand side, they are recovering. And it is not only from one month's data. We can see that both figures are continuously increased in the past three months. So actually, that means that China is、uh, gradually returning to the track of recovery, our sustainable recovery. So、uh, if you are looking at、uh, industrial production, I I would see that many areas like for the New、uh, new energy vehicles. They are especially surprising. There are so many new factories and brands are appearing. And on the other hand, if we are looking at the consumption, many people are going to the restaurant to 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 pay、uh, and trying to gather their activities. So for both sides, I think that the confidence is gradually returned to the market, and the consumers are also very important. Uh, supporter for more import from other countries, so it's a very nice circle for us to ob- observe the the performance of China's economy.、Mm. And yet, the government sets the priority to have high quality growth, and this is、uh, you know going to be driven by the digital economy, green transition, and making it more sustainable. So, could you elaborate more on that? And China has actually taken the lead in green innovation, right? Yes, absolutely. So I think this is a major、um, shift. I think you know China's old growth model has produced you know four decades of high growth rate,、um, but there are clearly you know some res- some limitations of that model. And so now I think you know China's goal is to develop technologies to have productivity led growth. Um, at the same time, you know, to be more sustainable. So a lot of investments in, you know, green energies, green technologies, and I think, you know, a lot of the、uh, results are、um, are really impressive.、Um, so now China is one of the leading countries in, you know, wind and solar、uh, capacity.、Um, China is, you know, occupying a very significant position in the supply chain、um, of both EV, solar panel, wind turbines. So I think all of this indicate, you know, China is embarked on a new path、um, that, you know, focuses more on inclusivity, high 
quality of growth um, and more consumption driven and also um, you know more uh, uh, innovation driven economy and i also just wanted to add a little bit more on the fdi um, point i think you know um, I think many of the foreign investors, um, they're probably still looking at, you know, China's economy because they wanted to get a sense of, you know, when would be the best time to enter. Um, there are also, you know, some, I think, are concerned about geopolitical risks. Um, but I think, you know, by and large, um, China remains to be a very attractive market, you know, with its annual growth rate that is way above the global average. Um, and it's also a very dynamic uh, you know, market with a lot of policy supports um, that would, you know, provide streamline of business registration, finance, and logistics and infrastructure. So I think China will remain to be a very desirable uh, location for foreign direct investment. That said, I think China is also becoming more selective in terms of, you know, what kind of foreign investments, you know, China wants, because this is not a time where China wants to continue to attract, you know, pollution, uh, polluting industries, um, or companies has nothing to offer. Um, they're looking for, you know, technologies. They're looking for, you know, uh, um, you know, going back to the high quality growth, um, uh, you know, strategy. So I think it's just a time where we see a lot of changes, and these changes could sometimes produce some short-term, you know, slowdown of the growth. But I think this is really for, um, you know, a long-term sustainable growth. Um, I think that it's going to be better um, for China's future and for the global economy as well. Mm. So, Dr. Zhou, so do you think the FDI or foreign direct investment will continue to flow into China? And some international institutions have already upgraded China's economic forecast for this year. How do you see that? Yes, I, I think that uh, for the investors, the most important thing is whether they can have a stable environment. And China definitely is one of the best examples. And the second is that they are see the potentials of a longer term of uh, increase of the market. I, I think that is also China's advantage. And the third one, many investors are trying to find a more innovative place to to do some investment because they can cooperate with the related supply chain. And China is having the very big advantages of having so many manufacturing sectors. So if we are looking at the data, I think that it's not only for the investors from the developed economy, are coming to China, but also many, many companies from the developing countries and also the emerging economies, they have come here to China to benefit by the cooperation. And that is also what we call it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, it's kind of transfer of the technology and the ideas of management to other countries, which is a, not only benefit China, but also benefit many other countries in the world. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, and Professor Yan Liang at Villamette University, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.